Then the Lord says, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land in which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go to a land flowing of milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Choreb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went to, out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose. Each man stood at his tent and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man at his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servants, Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore, if I've found grace in your sight, well then show me your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For I know that it will be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us. So shall we be separate. Your people, sorry, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Verse 17, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And then, of course, from there, Moses is going to pull the doozy and say, Show me your glory. Lord, again, let your word burst open. As you've told us, that your word is active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the intent and thoughts of our heart. Lord, I pray that you would do so now. Minister, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a long four months, five months, nearly a year since Moses and these people have left the land of Egypt. It has been a rough road. And understandably, this was the place that God had promised that Moses would go to. This 
promise that he is now tagging on to Moses is actually now deeper than the original promise God had given to Moses. Because the original promise was, remember when Moses went looking for that sheep, whatever the case, he sees a burning bush that we're aware of as he's tending sheep there in the wilderness. And there he sees a bush that's on fire and the bush begins to speak to him. And several times in Scripture you find these people that they argue with talking things. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something strange about it. Now, I don't know if I said this already, but please don't just believe me. You know that that should come into this. Don't just assume it's true. You know, if I just say it, search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. So no, look it. You've got a guy arguing with a bush. You've got a guy arguing with a donkey. It's just sort of some things you see in Scripture. Something starts to talk to you when you start to argue with it. I don't know about you, but that's a little weird. I mean, it's weird enough that a donkey starts speaking. Now, since Shrek, that's a little less weird, but it's always been weird. Here, now understand, you're standing, and now think about this, you're in the sand, it's probably 40-something degrees outside, and, and the sun's burning down on the sand, and a bush catches fire. Now understand, in the Middle East to this day, tamarisk bushes do catch fire, simply by the heat. So that isn't entirely out of the ordinary for a bush to catch fire. What is weird, actually, is that it isn't consumed. So Moses says, I will turn aside to see why this bush is on fire but not consumed. Now, who in the world he's speaking to, we don't know. Whether that's to the sheep, whether that's to someone else tending, we really don't know. All we know is that there's a bush on fire, it's not burning up, I better go check it out. Now, understand there's a bush on fire because it's hot, assumedly. That would, would be your natural inclin inclination. And the bush speaks to you and it tells you, take off your shoes. Think about that for a second. In the sand, any of you ever been to the beach on a hot day? And imagine if, if, the, if a wave rose up or a seal washed up on shore and said, Shirley, take off your sandals. What would you do? Do you think, fat chance, I need a second seal because by the mouth of two or more seals, the matter's established, right? So he does. And he says, because this ground you stand on is holy. Now understand, what's so weird about wearing shoes in a holy place? You see, on the bottom of your shoes is the world you've carried around with you. Oddly enough, God intended this to be a place where you left the world outside. This was our locker room experience. We would come into a room like this. We would gather together. And I'm not gonna, my intent is never to make this worldly. I don't want people to come here and not realize they're at church. My heart's desire is this would be the closest thing to heaven you're going to get so that when you go back out this locker room and take the field, you're a little bit more ready to win. Now, with that in mind, as this argument ensues, I'm sending you back. It's been a rough road, I understand. The last time you were in Egypt, you killed a guy and then fled for your life. But I'm sending you back. The difference now is 40 years, you've learned how to be a shepherd. You're going to need to know how to be a shepherd. And the good thing is sheep are dumb, sheep are helpless, and sheep are independent, which is really fun because it's exactly what Moses is going to be dealing with for the next 40 years as he leads people. Now, it isn't Jewish people, it's people. We're no better I mean, you could think you're tough. You could think, I'm like the sheep they make steel wool from. You know, I'm like Lambo. But in the end of it all, you're still sheepy. That's all there is to it. And if you've ever watched sheep try to actually rough each other up, they run their heads into each other, but they've got that little cushion on the top. Occasionally, they'll go like this with their paw. But they're really not that tough. You don't look and go, wow, that's scary. And then understand, God really wants us to recognize that if he really is our good shepherd, we should really stop trying to fight battles that it's his job to do.
Because we really look dumb in the ring when our shepherd's sitting on the side and go, I'll wait. You just let me know when you want to tag out. Well, please understand in all of this, as the Lord has called him back, the Lord systematically dismantles all of these other gods. Now understand, God could have, I mean, if God really just wanted to make this book shorter, what he could have done, if he wasn't the God that we know in Scripture, Moses could have walked over there. He said, let my people go. Pharaoh could have said no. And then God could have went, bam! And every Egyptian was dead. And he's like, how you like me now? And off they go. That could have been the story, but it wasn't. Because God wants the Egyptians just as much as he wants the Israeli. And so understand, the whole systematic ten plague thing that we see, in its simplest sense, was just God showing that anything you worshipped in Egypt was worthless because the living God has shown up in town and it's time to take people out. And therefore, when the whole thing comes down, understand Israel weren't, the Israelites weren't the only ones leaving Egypt. There were a whole lot of other people from Egypt leaving Egypt because why would you stay? Every God you worshipped has been taken down. Your house has been shambled. I mean, think about it. All your animals are dead. Things have come with giant chunks of hail. It's really not a... It's sort of like living in you know, New Orleans after Katrina or living in you know, the, the lower end of Thailand after the tsunami. It's kind of the place where, you know, if somebody came before that and said, let my people go or I'm going to bring a 70-foot wave, it's a pretty good possibility when that wave came, you'd go, okay, I'm leaving. Now, by the time we get to this particular point, God is going to take from Exodus 12, to be honest, to the end of Deuteronomy. And what he's going to do in that period of time is he's really going to be taking Egypt out of Israel as he's been taking Israel out of Egypt. And it's the same thing with us. You said yes to Jesus Christ. Assumedly you haven't. If you haven't, let me make it clear. We all start out sinners. We all start out in bondage, in the hand of the enemy, in the land of slavery. That's the beginning. But God in His infinite love for us sent His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to pay for all of our filth, our shame and our sin, died on the cross because it's what our sin deserved so that all our sin could be punished, and then rose again on the third day to give us a brand new life. Now I'm not just talking about a redecorated life. I'm talking about a brand new reinvented life. One where you're not the person you used to be. So don't tell me you'll always be an addict. You'll always be a whatever. The bottom line is you'll always be his now. Welcome to the new creation. And with that, now that you walk out, the problem is, is that you may become a new person, but you took an awful lot of baggage with you from Egypt. There are all kinds of things in your spirit. It's like your spirit picked up a whole new set of luggage right before you left. And scooped up all of these characteristics and qualities of who you were before. And trying to figure out how to drag them over the cross. To become somebody that actually has the best of both worlds. Let's be honest. And you know this. You know what's going to happen. Is whatever you were that was so darn fine before you gave your life to Christ. Will be picked on afterwards. Because God's going to show you that doesn't work anymore. So what happens is. Let's say you're naturally strong. And if someone looks at you and they're like, oh, Christianity, that's for weaklings. And you go, wow, I've never been thought of as weak. I've always been strong. You're the smart individual. You're sort of technical and you're intellectual. And someone looks and goes, oh, Christianity, that's for stupid people, for uneducated. How can you get into the 21st century? We all know by now Darwin's taught us the truth. Funny, I guarantee you right now Darwin agrees with us. I guarantee you. And it really doesn't matter where you start this thing. Somewhere you're going to get that. If you're socially gifted, they'll talk about it's for the outcast. And no matter what strength you thought that really makes you shine before in the world, to be honest, God will, in his love, 
that, to be honest, is just one of the gods of Egypt he took down before that point, but you still try to take him with you. And understand, by the time you get to the Psalms, you'll realize, and Amos 5, in Amos 5, God actually says, you know what, you guys actually took the star of your gods, Rimfan, with you. You took the, the tent of Molach with you. You took all of these other gods with you anyways. Here I was in the wilderness. He goes, did you actually offer me sacrifices in the wilderness? You know what you offered me? You offered me part-time affection while you still carried these hidden loves that you had back in Egypt with you. And I'll be honest, that's me too. And I think if we're all honest, that's all of us. Because somewhere down the line, we really would like to get the, we'd like to milk this world while we still got it and then cash in in heaven later on. But the problem is it doesn't work that way. If you spend everything in your hotel room, when you check out, it stays there. As Moses has gone up onto the mountain, he's received the Ten Commandments. But understand, if you read the text, if you remember, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, where was Moses? Was he at the top of the mountain or at the bottom? You tell me. He was at the bottom. Excellent. And who else was with him? Everyone. Everybody. God descends. When he gives the Ten Commandments, everybody hears it. They freak out, and that's when they say, you go up there and you handle it. We'll, we'll wait down here. So understand, when God starts to speak about building me in Exodus 25, build me a sanctuary so that I can dwell among my people, that's a conversation God's having with Moses, but the Ten Commandments everybody got, which is really important because the other thing he said is, now that that's the case, what's the one thing God wanted at the bottom of the mountain? An altar. He wanted an altar built there because he knew that Moses was going to come down soon and break those laws right there at the same place. Now, Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua is there as well. And, and as that's the case, he's having this beautiful time. It doesn't seem like they've eaten or drank anything in 40 days. But when God takes care of you, it's not important. And then with all of that, God says, now it's time to get down. Get down. And he goes, why? He goes, because the people have polluted themselves. They've already made an idol. They've, I mean, it's like, you know, God gave them the Ten Commandments. They didn't get past the first one. That's the point here. And as Moses starts to head down, it appears as if Moses is on a little higher of a plane here and speaking with God than Joshua. Because as he heads down, he picks up Joshua on the way. And Joshua goes, hey, it sounds like people are dying down there. It sounds like the voice of battle. And he goes, I'm sorry, that's just the choir. People are singing. And they get down there. And as they get to the bottom, there's people dancing around naked and freaking out. And then he looks in it. And, he, he, and Moses just, he breaks the law. As he runs to the people, he grinds this thing to powder, throws it in the water, and that says, drink, makes everybody drink it. You're not going to worship it by the time you see that again. And then once that's done, then he goes over to Aaron and he says, what are you doing? What did the people do to you that would make you do this? What could possibly have happened among the crowd that you succumbed to, that you had to get to this point where you made this? And he said, oh, you know those people. They're so bent on evil. And there's just, I mean, how many times in Scripture do you see some place where you have the opportunity to go, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. Which, by the way, Scripture calls confession. But we don't do that. We're too busy saying, you know, it was my childhood, it was my, you know, primary school teacher that said I'd never amount to anything, so I decided to shoot people. Whatever it is, we want to blame something. Because we've been raised on Oprah now instead of the Scriptures. And, you know, and Oprah's like, oh, you're right. That's his primary school teacher. Scripture says, listen, you're a sinner like every other person's a sinner. And because you're a sinner, that person needs to die. Praise God for the cross. Now we're on the other side of this. Now here we are dealing with a situation where Moses has gone up and he said, all right, God, what do we, what, what do, we do? These people have sinned. And God says, you know, I, I, I'll kill them. Let me kill them all. And Moses goes, mm, but you know what? You've got a reputation 
And what's the world going to say when they say he got him out of Egypt, but he couldn't get him in, right? And you know that that's where we start this, is we pick it up into our text. Because that's the same place most of us go to. We get that place where we know that God delivered us from hell. We know it. I mean, we read Scripture, and Scripture told us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not God will take a vote on it later. Well, we'll see. There will be a board meeting. It says, you will be saved. It's it's just a done deal. So I know that. So here I am. I started in this place, and I was this sinner. I was this rotten, nasty person. And I cried out to God, and I said, save me. And He said, sure. And He got me out of that place of bondage, out of the hand of the enemy. But I know that there's a place that He has, and I read in Scripture, where over here there's eternal life. I mean, and it's not just eternal living, because you're going to live eternally somewhere. So, I mean, it's sort of smoking or non-smoking, but you're going to live eternally somewhere. And, and in that, I realized that there's this eternal life, so much more, thriving in vivacity and life abundant. Now, that's different. And this joy that's inconquerable that no man could take. And this peace that surpasses understanding. I know that's this place, but somehow I got from this place, and I know that this place, but I'm stuck here, and I, I hear the enemy say the same thing. Well, he could get you out of that, but could he really get you in there? And so many of us as Christians, this is where we live. This place where it's like sort of like half condemned, because we know there's no condemnation, we know that verse, but somewhere it's like, I know this is what God's called me to, I just I have no idea how to get there because I'm so busy trying to figure out how to get the world and this. But the world was where I came from. And if I still attach to that, I, to be honest, God's like, look, at, in order for you to get here, you're going to have to leave your luggage on the way. Now, if I realize that this mixed multitude that Scripture speaks of here then from Exodus through to the book of Deuteronomy is more... See, the first time I read it, and maybe you were like this, the first time I read it, I thought, well, that's the church, right? There's always somebody that's really excited about getting to heaven, getting to... And this isn't just heaven. This is just God's will for my life now. Oh, there's people that are excited about being in it. And then there's some that are like, got dragged by the grandma. And they're like, oh man, I got to act holy, but mm, uh, I would, I would. when's this guy going to stop talking? And then there are people in between. Some people don't even know why they're there. They just, there's bread at the end of this or something. <laughs> but I remember a while back, and one of the things that really transformed me in my own heart about reading this text was getting alone and saying, Lord, I know that there's more to this. And him saying, you know, that's not, that mixed multitude, that's not just the church, that's just you. You're the mixed multitude. Because there is a part of me that just craves God with every breath. You know what I'm saying, some of you here? Prayerfully, all of you. But there's another part that looks at the world and goes, mm, there's still some tasty morsels over there. There's a part of me that still doesn't know what in the world's going on. And if I realize that, the 40-year death march is one of the most merciful things that could happen. Because what happens is, the old man dies for the new. You get it? That's the whole point here. And somewhere in it, this chapter gets nestled. And one of the scariest and hardest issues to deal with is in this chapter. Look at it with me. The Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here. Now, by the way, how merciful is that? Because this was the place of our failure. Now, interestingly enough, we're not actually going to leave this place until about Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Uh, it'll be about a month. It, uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a year and a couple of months into it. 
for the time we've left. Now, there's no time stamp at this particular moment other than we got here at Mount Sinai at three months. So we're going to be at this place for really roughly, very roughly about a year. So somewhere in this, this has happened. But understand, this is just such a cool thing for God. And I want to start by building on this as we kind of move through this text fairly quickly. Please hear me. When we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness is not God kind of just going, okay, forget about it, you know, that kind of thing. Literally, the term for forgive means to cast away and forsake. Now, if we treated each other that way, it would be a lot easier to understand God's forgiveness. We just don't. We tend to say, well, what that means is I remove the right to actually think about it for a little while, but the next time you anger me, this thing is artillery for the, you know, for the, the argument. Now, understand, if forgiveness really is to cast away and forsake, and think about it, that's the way we want to understand forgiveness with God, right? He casts it as far as east is from west. He re- chooses to remember it no more, which you really realize what that means. That means there's one area you actually know more than God by his choice, and that's your sin. How fun is that? But consider the fact in all of that, that if we really were to forgive the way God called us to forgive, we would actually have to cast things away. And it's amazing the things I can't remember and how well I can remember that. Does that make any sense? I could have 15 really awesome things that happened during the course of a day, but one nasty thing happened, and somehow by the time I get to sleep, that's the only thing I remember? But remember when Peter says, Hey Lord, if somebody sins against me, I should forgive him seven times, huh? Seven times, right? And the Lord turns and he goes, oh, no, no, Peter, 70 times seven? And if you're anything like me, what's the first thing we do? The math, 490. And I'm like, and 482 times, you've got seven, eight more, and then forget. Okay, well, here's the problem. If we genuinely forgive someone, every time's the first time. So you can't get to 490. Because if I genuinely forgave you, then you'd say, hey, I'm sorry I did it again. You'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, and you might be the one that goes, and imagine that in the relationship going, oh, you know, sorry, Rodrigue, you know, I'm so sorry because I've sinned against you again and I've, I know I've, I've hurt you and I know this is like the 480th time and I know we only have 10 times left. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's number one for me. How refreshing would that be? But that's the way it is with the Lord. Now imagine that's the God we're embracing here. Now, here's the crazy part about this, that God took a look at this place. Now imagine, this was the place that still has gold on the water, right? Because he's grounded into water, grounded, uh, ground the, 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 you know, this is ground beef, the first of it, and he's grounded, thrown into the water and told people to drink it. So there's still gold there, and there's, you know, there's, there's grounded dust. This is a place, and if you look here, you kind of see this was the place where everybody kind of got wiggy. So the Lord's like, I think we should leave here, don't you think? And isn't that awesome how he does that sometimes? That there's a time where you're just looking, like that place that just says failure. And even though the Lord has forgiven you, the Lord in kindness goes, let's just get you out of here because you're not going to get past this. Oh, I have, but you're not going to get past this. And that's what he says. Do you see the mercy in that? Okay, no, follow me on this. As it is the case, we started to move forward in and he says, now look at I'm still going to give you the land. Do you find that strange? This just tells me this never took God by surprise. Hey, I believe he's called every one of you to ministry. If you tell me, Pastor Tony, I, and I'm, I've been seeking the Lord and I think he's called me to ministry, my answer to you would probably be, duh. He's called every one of you to ministry. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus, he's going to use you. You can't take a dead thing, make it the only living thing in the morgue, and not actually make it be useful. Or he would have killed you. Now, 
Here they are, they've just, they're in the heat of one of the worst sins they'll ever commit. And he looks and goes, but I still made a promise, and I'm going to fulfill it. Now you need to remember, you can't surprise God because he knows everything. So don't even try to get him a gift for his birthday. The only one that he wants is you. So you don't even have to gift wrap it, just give it to him. And if you can't surprise God, and he knows everything, and he entered into a relationship with you, what thing has he yet to discover about you? Nothing. When God entered into that relationship, he knew the things you have yet to discover that you'll do. He knew the failures you have yet to fail. He knew those proud moments that you have failed to jump, that you have yet to jump on. Those moments that you, victory that he gave you that you'll actually claim credit for. He knew all of those things ahead of time. But when he, prom- when he made you a promise, he knew all of that. And if you think, yeah, but I have gotten naked and danced around a golden calf, because that's what these people did. And yet God still didn't look at this and say, all right, the deal's off. But what he is going to do here, I honestly think, is pin us to the wall into what makes the difference between real, vibrant Christianity and really lame Christianity. Follow me on this. I'm still going to give you the land. Verse 1. Verse 2, it says, I'm going to send my angel before you. I'll drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. I'm going to give you your land flowing of milk and honey. Verse 3. But I'm not going to be there. And here's my honest question, and I'm seeking to be very sincere here. Would this be enough? Would this be enough for me to say it's cool? Please understand what he said. He goes, look, here's the deal. First of all, I promised I was going to give you the land, so I'm going to give you a land. So I'm going to bless you. That land's going to be land flowing of milk and honey. Now, interestingly enough, by number 16, the people will actually look at Egypt, the place that was the place of their bondage, and call that the land of milk and honey. You can get so twisted, you could look back at the horrible life you had and think that was the glory days. Isn't it strange? As a Christian, shouldn't the glory days be in front of us? Well, please hear me. So here's the first of them. I'll give you blessings, man. I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be in a place where you can get... I mean, you'll be, some of you will become very, very wealthy. Some of you will have great property. And it'll be tremendously fruitful. Tremendously fruitful. I mean, you'll be able to live off the land. Some of you are going to get beachside property. Some of you are going to be able to put places and people to this day will save up their whole life to visit once. I'll give you that. I'll tell you what else I'll also give you. I'll give you victory over the Perizzite, Jebusite, over the Hittite, Amorite, Hivite. So you'll have victory. So, what would that look like? I'll tell you what that looked like. You're no longer an addict. You'll no longer have a problem with the internet. You'll no longer have a problem with drinking. You'll no longer have a problem feeling so overwhelmingly lonely that you need to have a a relationship, be it however weak or strong it would be, how bad it would be. You'll no longer be addicted to whatever this thing is. Oh, but there's more. I'll send my angel. That means you even get the spiritual world. You can get the tinglys. You can get the holy sweat. You can get the holy shakes. You could bark, you could scream. I mean, you'll know. 
You know, it's dangerous because we could worship, we could worship worship. You know what I'm saying? That's why we try never to call that worship. We call it praise because this should be worship too. Anything we're doing that demonstrates God is worthy should be worship. So like, that was a really nice worship time. Well, we're not done yet. We're going to get into the word. It's worship time. When you walk out that door, I pray it's worship time. I mean, you're going to worship something. You might as well worship the living God. He's the only one worthy of it. So let me ask you something. What if God gave you all of that? Would it be enough? You gotta, we've got a church. We've got a building. We've got land. That's cool. Or I've got my business. Things are growing. Things are looking good. I'm paying all the bills. I'm actually able to start saving some away. I'm online for a promotion. Things are good. I'm comfortable. I've got a little bit of my identity now. People know me as Bob the Builder. They know me as Micah the whatever. They know me as Rodrigue the... And, and, and they know me as this now. This is part of my identity. The kids are healthy. I'm not suffering any major illnesses. Things are comfortable. They're comfortable. I, have a, I come to church. I know some of the songs. I sing them. I get that feeling. Ooh, man, I'm feeling I'm part of something here. It's good. But if the Lord went there, would it be enough? See, understand, there's the difference. If heaven were heaven, you'd never get sick. You'd never get old. You'd never lose your hair. You'd never grow it in places you didn't want to. Um, you know, people, you'd never have to question people's motives. Everybody was always nice. Pizza always came on time. It tasted good and it was still warm. You know, nobody ever lost your address. You never had to say goodbye to anyone. You know, everything was just wonderful and comfortable. You never suffered. You never cried. You never had to worry about any of that. But if God were there, if he was not there, would it be heaven? Because understand, that's exactly what he's telling these people right now. And here's the danger, is that we could do this. And we could do this for so long that we don't even know we're doing it anymore. And we could be so cool about, you know, I just want to go to a place, I want to go to a church where I could get entertained, I want to go and make sure that my reading time is so I have more argument artillery, and I want to make sure that all of this, my prayers are something that really means something, so I can shove the, the will of God, but it really isn't about walking with Him anymore, it isn't about becoming like Him. And listen, if we walk with Jesus, one year from now, we should look more like Him. It shouldn't be that we should just be more skeptical or more cynical or more angry or more, you know, or, or, or less optimistic. How in the world does that look like Christian maturity? If in the end of it all, what you see is somebody that's like, oh, don't worry, that passion will die soon. You're just a young Christian. And you think, what in the world are you talking about? Where are the Caleb's? The guys that are 85 and say, you know what? I saw land 40 years ago. Give me the land. He's like, well, if you want to go, go get it. He's like, all right, I'll go get it. Come on, let's go get them. You know? And I think, where are those guys? Because I want to be one of those guys. If the Lord tarries, hold me accountable to that. Hey, I may not have the passion then. I may be laying on my bed, but I'm like, oh, he's good. Let's get it. Not just it's good. Scripture says, Romans, and it quotes, by the way, from the Psalms, that nobody seeks after God. You go, how is that? People go, I'm a seeker. Well, I'm sure you are. What we want are the things of God without them. And what we want is just peace. 
We want His love. We want His joy. We want His security. We want His comfort. We want identity that feels important. We want purpose. We'd love all of those things. And if all of those things were granted to us in abundance, exactly like we asked, but He didn't show up, would it be enough? Now here, you know the answer's got to be no. Out there, it's a little harder for every one of us. Because out there, saying that will cost you something. But that's where the Lord is with this. And we'll talk about when he actually, the people beg for meat, or they whine for meat, and he gives them the meat, and it says he gave them the desire of their heart, but sent leanness to their soul. Understand, here's the deal. If you are going to walk with God, let me tell you a couple of things that's going to happen. One is, sin's not going to be fun anymore. You could try to run around in it, but sooner or later, you get to the point where you say to yourself, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. I'm not even getting pleasure from this anymore, and I'm still doing it. What is wrong with me? You will actually see the fraud that you are, and every one of us is a fraud before we come to Christ. Because if we ever said, I'm okay, that's fraud. And he's going to nail you on it. And we're going to not pretend that we're brilliant, super anything, like what we have is to give God something. Instead, what we're going to do is going to be like, you know what, I'm small and you're big and anything that's good you gave me. And here's the difference, is that if I just make it about him, all of that other stuff kind of falls in the line. There's the irony. You could be married and spend all your time doing all of your events, but never really being with your spouse. And it would look so good on the outside, but inside, you go to sleep at night and think, this is lame. And and I bet you know couples like that. It's the ceremonial kiss before sleep. It's the ceremonial kiss as they leave the house. There's no passion in that. It's the ceremonially, I love you at the end of a phone call that has to be responded with, I love you too. It's all ceremonial. It's the prayer before a meal. It's the prayer before we sleep. It's the good night. But there's no heart in it. Please hear me. Please hear me. God just gave them the total carte blanche to get everything they wanted but nothing they needed. Hey, I'll give it all to you. I promise you that. Can I just say praise God for Moses? Because I don't know how many of the people would have stood with him. But we're going to start to see what happens when there's one person. Listen, one person's enough. One person. It doesn't say Moses and Aaron, Moses and Joshua and Aaron. And then we just see Moses. One person that decides that that's not going to be enough. Can you be that Moses today? What would happen if a room full of Moseses rose up and actually did something? And you say, God, you can't touch that area. And God says, look, I'm Lord. And I have the right to touch every area. Say, don't touch my sex life. Don't touch my identity. Don't touch my business. Don't touch my priorities. Don't touch my whatever. And God says, look it. The first thing you tell me not to touch is the first place I'm going to put my hand on. Just to make sure you know that I deserve to be Lord of all. Verse 4 says, when the people heard this bad news, did you notice, by the way? And by the way, notice they didn't call it bad news. God called it bad news. No, wait a minute. Isn't bad news the opposite of, I don't know, good news? 
bad news is God says, I'm not going to be with you. Guess what the good news is? I will be with you. And this is what I've done to get there. Do you see how that works? See, please understand, in God's mind, everything revolves around his relationship with you. Nothing's more important. The worst news for God is that you're not with him. The best news is that you are. In everything he does, if you ask God, give me this, give me that, give me this, and if it would pull you away from him, why in the world would he give it? If the, I mean, and pardon me for saying it, I don't want to try to challenge other people on this stuff. I want to challenge you individually on this. If the only time you really crawl into the arms of God and cry out to him is when you're sick, why in the world would he make you well? If the only time when you would ever crawl into his arms and actually love on him is in a time of great need, why would he ever pull you out of the trial when the most important thing to him is your relationship with him? Can I just dare say God wants you miserable without him? Now, interesting, look at the condition the people are in. Verse 4, it says, When the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. To this day, by the way, it's Jewish tradition that if it's in a house of mourning, you cover the mirrors. You're not even allowed to put on makeup. No, anything. Your watches stay off the whole bit. And it comes from this verse. This is why, because the Lord had said to them, say to the children of Israel, you're stiff-necked people. I could come in, your, in a moment and just wipe you out, so take off your ornaments. Here's the strange thing. God is looking at them, and they're still dressed for the rave. That's the point of this. They're still totally covered in their beads, smelling like, you get it, like ecstasy. Running around in a place where it's like, now understand, if somebody were to walk in here looking like they were a gal on hire, we would welcome that gal just as she is, love on her, because we'd want her to know the love of Jesus. But every one of us, sooner or later, we start stepping out of the world we came from to actually look at the world that, we, that we're going towards and to look more like Jesus. Now, I'm not saying every one of us is going to wear long, you know, white robes. Well, you will, but that's up in heaven. Here on the other side of it, the point is, is that you don't want to be so covered and draped in your sin. And have you ever done this? You've been right in the middle of the sin. You know you should confess. You sort of confess. You throw out sort of a manby, wimpy confession just to try to make sure that the, sort of the deal gets met. But in all of that, you're still, like, you're still in the middle of your sin. You're like not doing anything to change it. You're not doing anything to kind of res- be responsible for it. It's sort of like, oh, Lord, you know, yeah, forgive me. Please forgive me because this is really horrible. And he's like, please, in other words, what we're really saying is please don't let any really bad circumstances result from this. Isn't that what we're really saying? Please, Lord, God, don't make this be something bad later. So he looks at me and goes, look at you guys. You're still, you're still decked up. Now understand, please, there's a difference between just being decked up and being decked up for your God. Yes, you guys are still, and, and the ornaments these people wore were, were places where they were, in all honesty, they were simply things that showed allegiance to the God that they belonged to which, by the way, they thought they belonged to, not the one they should belong to. So you were wearing things that said you belonged to so-and-so. I mean, imagine, that's the idea that you just moved to Arsenal, but you got a big Chelsea hat on. Is that fair? Is that the right way to say that? You're asking for trouble. And somebody, you know, somebody says, come on in, we're having a big, we're having a big, you know, welcome party for all of the Arsenal fans. We want to give a big meal for everyone. And you come in with your Chelsea hat, you kind of get an idea there's going to be trouble. (laughs) 
Now listen, so the people strip themselves of the ornaments because God says, look at you guys. Let me tell you how stiff-necked you are. You're still dripping from your sin when you're asking for it. So the children said, all right, I'll take them off. Now here's the crazy part. When God is outside the camp, this is one thing I've learned about him. He doesn't go away. Is there incredible mercy in that? I mean, mercy that's beyond really reasonably understanding. Now, it's interesting because this whole thing really revolves a lot like the book of Revelation, those first, or the chapters two and three, doesn't it? Where it started with a church that had left its first love. And he said, if you don't repent of this, I want you to remember from what you fell. I want you to return, repent and return to those first works. He goes, or I'll come and I'll remove that lamp right from you. And the last church, just lukewarm. In between, there were compromises. In between, there were false doctrines being espoused. There were all kinds of things happening, but please hear me. It started by leaving your first love and it ended with being loveless. That's really the simplest of it. But by the last time when you were lukewarm as a Laodicean, I've been to every one of those places and I could, you know, we, we could walk you through all kinds of things that were cultural there. He didn't say, you kicked me out. See ya. I'm so done with you. And you know what? Do you know why we think God would do that? Because we would. Hey, you do that to me, you're done. Without the help of God. I have a switch and I'll be honest, it's because before I knew the Lord, I didn't like anyone. People used to joke and say, you know, if you could have a, if you lived on a deserted island and you could have one thing, what would it be? And I used to say offense. I mean, that's where I was. But the moment I gave my life to Jesus Christ, my whole life changed. And to be honest, to be a pastor is one of the craziest places for me to be. And I'm so thankful for it because I get to love you guys. Please hear me on this. But there is an unsaved, one of the things that went in my luggage that I tried to drag over the cross is a switch I have. That says, you burn me, I just hit it, you're done. I don't even, you're done. You're out of my mind and my heart. God doesn't allow that, but it's a very natural thing for me. So when I think, well, if I had done, if someone had done to me what I've done to the Lord, that switch would have been hit a long time ago. God's like, I don't have that switch. I didn't build that switch into you. If I built that switch into you at all, it's for the world. It's not for people. So they stripped themselves of these things. But by the time you got to in, in Revelation chapter 3, notice he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Could you imagine kicking Jesus out of the church and him just standing on the other side of the door and knocking? Is that the strangest thing? I mean, this is the one who dwells in inapproachable light, the one whose voice splinters the cedars of Lebanon, that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And this is the same God who marked the heavens by the expanse of his hand. And this same God who could split and bust our eardrums by clearing his throat gets quiet enough to a still small voice. And that same hand that holds the universe gets small enough to knock on the door of a heart and says, you kicked me out. Can I come back in, please? Oh, it's still full of all kinds of fun religious things. And you still got all that stuff going on. But guess what's missing? Guess what's missing? Guess what's missing? And here's the crazy part. If it had been any one of us, we would have gone, I'm done. Statement made, and we would have bailed. But not my God. My God looks at us, and He says, have you any idea, Adam, where you are? You're hiding with itchy fig leaf underwear. 
Is there any part of that that makes sense to you? Out of love for you, I'll give you something new. So tell them, look at It's time to break off. And don't you love that term here? It's time to break off those emblems of that old world. It's a bad relationship. It's a bad lifestyle choice. It's a bad thing that somehow you decided not to call it the sin God calls it. And I'm not telling you this because God won't love you. I'm telling you this because he's standing at the door and knocking and he'd really like to come in and there's no room for him at the moment because you filled it full of rubbish. Hey, me too. To be honest, the one thing I can fill my house full of is just me. So full of me. So what happens? Moses goes and he pitches his tent outside the camp. And we read, by the way, notice, let me ask you this. It tells us in verse 7 that he pitched his tent. In relation to the camp, where was it? You tell me. What does it say? What's that? Outside the tent. Where outside the tent? Where outside the camp? Far. Oh, don't miss that. Hey, guess what? It is now inconvenient. God wants to be in the center of the camp. Isn't that what he said? I want to be in the center of the camp. By the time we get to the book of Numbers, he'll say, center of the camp, that's where I want to be. Three of you here, three of you here, tribes-wise, three of you here, three of you here. I'm going to be in the middle. Here it is. Moses says, look, you know what? If every other person in the universe still wants to play this, let's get naked around the golden calf thing, I'm, still, I'm going to just pitch my tent somewhere else. And I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to pitch it close. Because pitching it close is just basically living inside it but trying not to look like it. Does that make any sense? It's like, look it. I don't get wasted. Just have a couple beers in the club. How's that working for you? Is it making you more like Jesus? No, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to challenge you. My challenge to every one of us is, what would happen if we started looking more like Jesus? Not just started looking more like the world so they stopped hating us, you know, or started hating us less. Listen to what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul says, I've written you to not keep company with anyone who is named a brother or sister, by the way, who is sexually immoral, covetous, a reviler, that's a party animal, a drunkard, an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now, that is not because you're better than them, but it is because you're better off. It is so that they realize that they can't play that game and still feel comfortable. They need to realize that here's the crazy part. The entire nation of Israel, minus one small group, which was Moses and Joshua, the entire nation of Israel was outside the camp. Not Moses was outside the camp. Moses was the new camp because he was going to walk with the Lord, whether no one else did or not. And look at you don't need anyone else's permission. If you really want to be full on for Jesus and when someone says stop being overboard, what does the Lord tell you? And if you need permission, you have mine. I'm sure Steph will tell you and other guys will tell you to be my guest to go overboard. You can't OD on Jesus. Please. Revelation 18.4 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. 
says in 2 Corinthians 6.17 about being an unequally yoked come out from among them. That does not mean we don't engage them. Notice what's going to happen next. Verse 8 it says, and we're wrapping this around now. Whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, all the people rose. Each man stood at his tent and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass that Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended, stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord stood and talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar standing at the tabernacle door, and the people rose and worshipped, each one at the door. Moses and God spoke face to face as a man speaks to his friend, which has got to be funny because God says no one can see my face and live, which means somehow you're looking at the face of a pillar and not the face of, of, of the Lord yet. And Moses would go in and out, but his servant Joshua would remain. Now go back for just one moment. It says in verse 7 that Moses took his tent, he pitched it outside the camp. He called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that every person who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle. Did you get that? You see, if it isn't going to stand out, no one's going to go out. And there are times where we could try to make things look so comfortable for the unbeliever that we, to be honest, we really make it very uncomfortable for the believer. And I don't want to do that. I really want every human being that no matter where you come from, no matter whatever lifestyle, no matter whatever, you could come in here and feel comfortable just not in your sin because I don't want to feel comfortable in mine either. I want to be changed. Now understand, I'm not talking about being a rebel or being a loose cannon or being a maverick. What I'm talking about is being willing to follow the Lord where he leads you and not just be a part of a crowd because it calls itself Christian and say that's good enough. So we have all the spiritual experiences, but somehow Jesus really isn't part of it anymore. And we have all of these blessings, but it seems like Jesus isn't really the center of it anymore. And it seems like we have all of these things, these programs and these things, and I have this stuff, and great stuff's happening, and, and wow, and I have these victories I'm seeing in my life, but the Lord's really not the center of it anymore. And this is how it ends, this area. Moses is not pulling himself away. And by the way, I have my first hint that Moses isn't going to be the final guy in this story. Because here Moses would go in, he'd get the word he needed to come out, but Joshua wouldn't leave. And can I just say, he who's planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. Please don't be a Moses in this case. Where you go in, you're going to get your thing and you're just going to go out and that's it. And take that tabernacle with you. So Moses starts to speak and he says, look at If we really found grace in your sight, I mean, if you really, really know me by name as you say, and you are who you say you are, then you need to come with. Because I am not leaving if you aren't. And I'll be honest, for some of us, me included, staying takes more faith than going. I've said there's some that the Lord has to say go to and some that the Lord has to say no to. Because we're all ready to go and God says no and you're like, okay, that's going to take faith. Some of the Lord says go and you're like, oh, that's going to take faith. But what Moses says is, I'm not leaving if you aren't. If you're going to stay here and you can tell everyone they can go and have all those blessings, I would rather stay here just with you and have none of that than get all of that. And all I can think about is Psalm 16 but David would say, you are the portion of my inheritance, the lines have fallen in good places. In other words, what David said is, you know what I really get? And the only thing I really want, one thing I've desired of you, only one thing I'll seek after, that I would dwell in your house all the days of my life. 
and to behold your beauty, to inquire in your temple. That's what I really want. In which David says, if I could have anything, can I just move in? What if I had a heart like that? Verse 16 says, look at how, how will anyone know that we're your people? How will they know that we've really found the grace except that you're with us? And that's what's going to make us separate. Now please hear me as we wrap this. It's our last verses. You're aware of the fact that there's no other religion that has grace? Are you aware of that? This is the danger among Christianity. Even amongst the faith world, faith does not extend God's hand. Faith receives from it. Please hear the difference. It isn't like I have faith so God offers. God has been offering. I just have faith to receive. I'm not, God is not responding to me. I'm responding to him. That's the beauty of this. It's dangerous when you say, if you have more faith, God will, versus God already wants to. If you had faith, you'd jump in line with it. Because he really wants to bless his own. He really wants to love and protect, and he wants to fulfill. That's what he really wants to do. Everything else in the world, and we've talked about this before, you know this, is about you perform and God responds at the end. Whatever that religion is. You, do your, you make your trip, you do your hajj, you wear your thing, you fast however many days, you pray however many times, you do your whatever, you give to the poor, you sacrifice whatever. And in the end of it all, whatever your sacrifices are, they amount into some little basket and some form of entity somewhere decides whether that's enough. You performed, you did the work, and the God or whatever it is on the other side said, okay, you can pass or you can't or whatever, or you're going to be reincarnated as a cockroach. Whatever it is, somehow you did the performance and the, the issue in the end of it is someone else decides. Interestingly enough, according to Scripture, it seems like it's the opposite. God did all the work. He put it in your hands and gave you the choice. Now, that's a pretty radical difference. And that, by the way, is called grace. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. It's a gift. Charis, like we get the word charismatic, means gift. All grace is, is it's a gift. Now, understand, there's the danger. He goes, look at if we really have found grace, we haven't just found reward. We haven't just found mercy. Mercy is great. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. If you've done something wrong and you don't get nailed as hard as you could for it, that's mercy. But if you get blessed upon that, that's grace. Not going to hell is infinite mercy. His presence, his love, being a new creation, having eternity with God, that's grace. Limbo, which doesn't exist in Scripture, but if there was a purgatory, which doesn't exist in Scripture, let me make that clear, that could be mercy. Heaven is grace. Does that make sense? Now please hear me. Moses is discovering something most of us might not. If we've really found grace, the world should see us differently than everyone else. Isn't that true? Different than every other religion. Hey, you want to compete over your morals and standards? Good luck with that one. Our history alone is spotted. You want to compete over who has the healthiest families? in the major mass of things, over who gives greater honor to the older folk. Try to compete with Japan on that. See how well we do. Who actually goes door to door more? Compete with the cults on that. We'll lose. But here's the crazy part. The one thing that separates us from the rest of the world is that God lives in us. Because the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he came and made his home inside of you. That's what Ephesians 1.13 says. So please hear me. We don't have to whoop it up. 
We don't have to be something fantastical and try to do something that really is contrived and looks like a dog and pony show. If God's presence dwells inside of you, He is going to change you. Because whether you know it or not, you're possessed. We are the gloriously possessed people. And we are possessed by the one person in the universe who loves us more than we do. That actually says you are so valuable that the, only the richest being in the universe could afford you and it cost them everything. And that's the person who dwells inside of you. And here's the point. When Moses says, look at if the world is going to look at us and see a difference, it's going to have to be you. The strange thing is our behavior will fall into line if that's what it is. And that takes us back to the bush and that takes us to prayer. Because when God says, take off your shoes, this place is holy. It wasn't holy because a bush was on fire. It wasn't holy because it was hot. It was holy because God was there. So why are you holy? Because God is there. If God were to get his mail, he would put you as his permanent address. How nice is that? So he says, he's like, God, please, beyond your mercies, beyond all your blessings, beyond all these spiritual experiences and angelic things that I don't even fully get, beyond all the health and wealth and blessing and, and comforts, can I just have you? Because if I could just have you, then that stuff becomes your tools and not my satisfaction. As we pray, I want to ask God to do something pretty profound in every one of us. I want to ask him to actually start checking your luggage. Have you ever gone to the airport and the airport says, you can't take that? You know, they moved it. In America, you know, we went by pounds. I got it, I got it at one of the speaker cabinets, that one actually right there. Funny that it would be here the first time it's ever been at this church. That's, they said it had to be under 100 pounds. That's 99.89 pounds. Once the scale was a little off, I had to remove the grate. Then they moved it down to 70 pounds. So we have a speaker that's just under 70 pounds. And then they said it had to be under 50. The guitar case that they make that has to be, the one that qualifies for the airlines is 54 pounds. That's without my guitar. But you get to that place where they're like, we're sorry, you can't even take this anymore. Could you imagine if God were your gate agent tonight? And today he looks and he goes, let's take a look at your life. Naomi, let's take a look. I'm sorry, this won't pass through if you really want to take this journey. Would you be willing to leave that back? Could you imagine what would happen today if the Lord did that? Here's the question. Are you willing? Are you willing to let him? Because I have a feeling every day we're going to wake up and he's going to go, hey, I was looking through your bags again, and you're going to go, oh, no. And he's going, but let's take this thing and let's leave it. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we prepare, knowing next week that you are going to show us your glory. What a wacky place to go. It's so beautiful. Today we confess to you we could be pack rats. We carry things and we trap things and we collect things we just don't need. 
that really aren't even fitting into the new life you're giving us. Their priorities, their lifestyle changes. Their old bitternesses, things we still feel like we have a right to claim as bondservants, slaves. How funny is that? And I recognize today that you are seeking to make our walk with you simple. Not one that's overridden with complicated things. Just you and me. And so please, Lord, today in this room, would you speak to every one of our hearts? Would you please today, Lord, make it just you and me? So Lord, whatever baggage doesn't belong, in your kindness and in your gentleness and in love, would you please just tell us it doesn't fit? It's too heavy for us to carry. It's ill-fitting. It's not the light burden you intended. And I pray today we could let go. I pray we would let go of our ornaments, those things that we think make us look so good but don't belong to you, that we let go of them. I pray today that we would let go of those things that we pursue, that we would stop chasing after your stuff, focus more on seeking you. Lord, that we would stop trying to be validated by anything but the cross. And that our families, that our relationships with friends, at the workplace, at the marketplace, that everything would change. Today you would actually have a right of search and seizure of every area of our lives. That we wouldn't play games with you. God, forgive us for where we would try to throw out some kind of casual confession and prayer while still dripping from our own sin. Forgive us for where, Lord, we would want to look good in the eyes of men but not seek to be right in yours. Forgive us for where we've cluttered the house that you're supposed to live in with those very things that you told us if it become a lifestyle within a brother we're not to even eat with. But I know that all of that is for the intent of seeing someone be brought back to repentance. Oh Lord God, I just pray right now for every one of us, myself included, that it would just be us and you. And I pray right now, Lord, for anyone here who may have never said yes to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Father. You've told us that your Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, so do so now. I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen, and if you agree at the end, I ask you to give a strong and confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I confess to you I'm a sinner. And I know that you as a righteous judge punish all sin. But in your love for me, 
You sent your Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross that all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my guilt could be punished. And it died there. But just like your Scripture promised, He rose again on the third day. And on that third day, He showed me that He has the right to be my Lord, my reinventor, and the giver of the new life now that I'm to live. A brand new me. No matter how I felt like I was born, no matter how I felt I was inclined, no matter however I felt like what tendencies I had or, or affinities, I lay it all down before you and I ask right now for you to reinvent me. Break off my ornaments. Remove my lust for Egypt, my land of bondage. And deliver me, Lord, not just to the place where you got me out, but I do believe you could get me in to the place of perfect peace and joy and love. The place, Lord, where you belong to have me, where you long to have me. I don't want to rob you of any of that, so here I am, I'm yours. Father, adopt me as your own, I belong to you. As I surrender to you now, have me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.